0: This morning, uh, we continue in our series on the life and ministry of Jesus, but we kind of enter into a little subset of this series where we look at the most profound, the most maybe well-known throughout all of history, discourse or sermon in all of scripture and in all of recorded history. And that is Jesus' sermon on the, help me out, mount. You know it. You've heard of that, haven't you? Can you recite it? I can't either. I could read it to you, but I can't recite it. It would be a good thing to memorize, though, wouldn't it? Maybe the challenge for you over the next couple months here, we're going to be studying this through the end of 2014, is uh, it's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Maybe you would take time every day to read either all three of those chapters or one of those chapters, 5, 6, or 7, every day through the end of the year. You know what that would take for you to read 5 through 7? If you're an average reader, it would take you about 10 to 12 minutes to read chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. That's not a big commitment, is it? But maybe at least a couple times a week, if not every day, you'd commit yourself to reading either a portion or all of the Sermon on the Mount and see how Jesus' teaching on the kingdom and what it means to be his kingdom people, how that might affect you over the coming months and our church over the coming months and years. Uh, with that, though, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump in. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you've got an app on your phone, whatever you've got, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we'll start there as soon as I finish praying. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you uh, for his work on the cross for me. I thank you that he lived the life I could not, that uh, he takes my sin and gives me his righteousness. That. Um, that his life is an example for me to follow, and uh, I just thank you for him in so many ways. Thank you for your grace to us and to me through him, Holy Spirit. I pray this morning that as uh, we look at uh, Jesus' longest sermon, um, his first one that's recorded at least in Matthew, uh, uh, the one that that is maybe most well known uh, by by people living on the earth today, even if only by title. Um, I pray that as we study this, we would see in it the, the profound nature of what Jesus is saying and uh, the, the incredible countercultural kingdom that he's proclaiming that, that his church, that, that we, your people, are a part of and then how we ought to live in light of that, to live as his, as his people, as your people. Um, so Holy Spirit, I pray that as I, I speak and uh, as I teach that you would speak to and through me as well. Um, I I thank you that you forgive me of my sin, Father, and I I pray also against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Um, This is a teaching that is absolutely in opposition to his kingdom, uh, which uh, we sang about a minute ago. We'll, We'll come to a short and quick end with but a word of your mouth, Jesus. And uh, because of that, he would like nothing more than to uh, to twist my words or to accuse us even as we as we listen and hear, Jesus, your words. Um, so I pray against him, his servants, their works and effects. And instead, Holy Spirit, move in a powerful way to, to teach us, to change us, and shape us to be more like Jesus. We love you. Thanks that you loved us first. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me... Last Sunday we, we were in Mark chapter 2 and 3, and we kind of gave a background leading up to what's happening right here. So let me just retrace that a little bit in case maybe you weren't here last week. And you can know what, what is the stage, what's, what's going on here where Jesus is teaching, why is he there, who is he speaking to, what's he speaking about. Well, we're in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and, and we saw Jesus last week walking with some of his disciples, with some of his followers, through the grain fields, Right? And what were they doing? They were hungry, and so what did they do? They grabbed some of the grain. They rubbed it between their hands. They, they had a bite to eat. And the religious people, the Pharisees, the legalists, were right after them, and they said what? Eh, wrong. Can't do that. They, they carried around like one of those taboo buzzers. You ever play that game? <laughs> I can remember my brother just taking that and squeezing it all the time whenever we tried to talk. That started a lot of fights. It was fun. But that's the Pharisees. They've got their buzzer. They're walking around. Nope, can't do it. Wrong. Eh." And they're saying you can't do that on the Sabbath. How can you profane the Sabbath? That's supposed to be a day of rest. But the Pharisees, the legalists, the religious people, they made what was supposed to be good a whole lot of work. And, and, And they made people slaves not to God's law but to their own law. That's why so many people today are against religion and are against the church because we still have legalists today who make people slaves to man-made rules, not God's rules. Well, after this, then he goes into their synagogue and he heals a man with a crippled hand. And they said, you can't heal on the Sabbath. What are you doing healing somebody? That's work. You're supposed to rest. They're being legalistic, right? Because Jesus goes, well, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? And in Matthew's account, he even says, "I mean, if if something you you had a sheep and it fell in a pit on the Sabbath, would you leave it there till till Sunday morning to pull it out? I don't think so. I think you'd go get it because it's it's good to do good on the Sabbath." They wouldn't answer him. They get angry with him, and they plot now to kill him. Why? Because Jesus is preaching something and teaching something that's a threat to their rules, and it's a threat to their understanding of what it means to please God when. Their understanding of pleasing God was to please man and to to meet all these requirements. Well, Jesus, and what he taught, he ends up getting swarmed by people, we saw in Matthew 3, 7 through 12, because he's healing them, he's loving them, he's caring for them. And so finally, after the end of a long day, he heads up on a mountain to get away, and he spends a full night in prayer. And after this full night in prayer, he calls you can read about this at the beginning of, of chapter 6 of Luke. He calls his followers to him, those that he wished to come to him. He calls them. They come up to the mountain with him. He appoints the 12 disciples, those who would be leaders uh, in his ministry. And then after this, he's coming back down, and, and the crowds have come. They've been looking for him because of his healing, because of all the things that he had done for them, and his grace, and everything they've seen about him. They're, they're, they're flocking to Jesus, And he's coming down from the mountain, and and he sees the crowds, and that's where we're at this morning. He stops to teach them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Luke records it, kind of the opposite, that he was there with his disciples. And when he starts coming down, he stops on a level place on his way down the mountain. Which one is it? I don't know. They're just telling it from different perspectives. We might tell a story about one event a little bit differently, right? So these aren't contradictory to one another. But in any case, Jesus is there and he's speaking from the top of a mountain or top of really a big hill to all these people, to this crowd of people. And that's the, the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. And well, why would Jesus do this from a hill? Oftentimes when you see Jesus and he goes to, to speak or to, to to give a sermon of some sort, he often does it from a hill. Why? Well, because the synagogue of that day, the, the, the church building, quote-unquote, of that day, sat 20, 30 people maybe, if it was a big one. And, and you're talking about the crowds of thousands of people who were coming to see Jesus. There wasn't a large auditorium for everybody to cram into, you know? They couldn't go to, to the Coliseum in Fort Wayne. They couldn't go to the football stadium over at well, Wawaseer. They couldn't go to Indy to, I mean, they couldn't go anywhere. They, they just, they had to make do with what they had. And instead of a, a man-made creation for them to go into and to, to sit, Jesus is like, well, I'll use what I made. I'll climb up on the hill and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and speak to them from there because of the natural acoustics of that and being able to project out over a large audience. And that's what he does. And when you hear Sermon on the Mount, really it's a, it's a big hill uh, near Capernaum that would have looked out over the Sea of Galilee or Lake Galilee, like I often call it. Next time you're out on the lake, maybe you're out on, on Lake Wawasee or on Lake Webster or whatever, the Sea of Galilee is about three times or so bigger than Lake Wawasea, so it's not real big. Um, but imagine the next time you're out on the lake, there's just a big hill on the end that you can kind of see the outline of the hill there and that's where Jesus was standing, sitting, teaching his followers. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. And it was projected out over all these people. But a couple things just to set the stage as we launch into this that I want you to understand about the Sermon on the Mount. And these are recorded in your, in your notes this morning. First off, you can read it in Matthew 5 through 7. And it's, it's also parts of it are also recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 6. It's addressed primarily to Jesus' followers. Luke tells us that he, he, he addressed his disciples. But, but there were crowds who came from all over the place to listen in. From all over the known world of that time. Came to hear and to see Jesus at great expense. I mean, that, it's, it's kind of similar to church, right? Right? Where, where there's people that I'm speaking to when I'm speaking who are, you are followers of Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sin. You've turned to him. You're a Christian you've truly repented and turned to him and then there's others of you and others who come in and out at different times to kind of come and see and they're here and and you may be listening you may not have decided to trust jesus yet but you're welcome here and you're welcome to listen but but you need to understand some of the blessings even that jesus speaks here as he's speaking to his disciples apply to those only who have trusted jesus christ they can apply to you but you must repent of your sin become a christian become part of his kingdom then you're included in his kingdom people it's pretty simple but until you do these things that we'll talk about this morning don't necessarily apply to you so it's addressed to followers but crowds are allowed to listen in and then what Jesus is doing here is he's preaching almost he's preaching primarily about the kingdom of God in the sermon of the mount and what is the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of man What are the rules of God as opposed to uh, the rules of the religious people, the rules of man, the laws of God versus the laws of man? How is the kingdom of God to be lived out? What is it like? He's describing this kingdom and specifically he's describing the people of this kingdom and what it would look like to live in his kingdom, to be a Christian. And the kingdom of God is counter-cultural. You might think of it like this. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's upside down. What's Jesus say? The first will be last. How about, last time you went and you stood in line somewhere, who was first? The first people were first, weren't they? That's how it works on this earth. Those who are first are first. Jesus says, that's not the way in the kingdom. The first shall be last. And the last shall be first. It's upside down. Who who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who does Jesus say? Do you know this from Scripture? The least. Well, that's not how it works in kingdoms on this earth, is it? Think about the rulers of kingdoms on this earth. The the greatest are who? Well, the greatest, the ones with the most wealth, with the most power. In Jesus' kingdom, who's greatest? It's flipped upside down, those who are the least. And and it's an upside-down kingdom. He also speaks about this kingdom because the kingdom of God is, it's already inaugurated, but it's not yet fully realized. Some big words, right? It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. We're kind of stuck in this in-between phase. Where when Jesus comes, he comes and declares the kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Right here, right now. I'm here. I'm bringing the kingdom. But God's kingdom... The kingdom of God will be perfect. Jesus will be king. He'll rule and reign. There'll be no sin. There'll be no uh, rebellion. It'll 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 be perfect. Is that happening yet? Not yet. Not the last time I checked the news. Right, or even my own heart, for that matter. But but that's a day that's coming, and so it, it's here. But we're kind of in this in between phase where we still sin, and and one day Jesus is coming again, and it will be fully. Realized, so the kingdom's upside down it 's already, but it 's not yet there's there's some aspects of it that we can see and live on this earth, but we 're not going to fully get it until Jesus comes back and fully experience it until he comes again and then finally the church the the church is god's kingdom people and it's called to be and to build jesus' kingdom it 's called to be and to build his kingdom it it's about being a certain type of people that are honoring to God and honoring to Jesus. And in doing so, building his kingdom. And that's the church capital C. And the church local, the local church, small c, every church, which would include Sea Bible, we're an outpost of that kingdom. We're, we're just a small spot, a small part of God's huge kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We're an outpost of it. And God's kingdom is not a kingdom that's totally on the defense, right? It's an offensive kingdom. It's taking ground. It's bringing more people into the kingdom. It's not just putting up the walls and saying, oh, we're scared. I'm going to hide here. No, it's getting out and bringing people into the kingdom. It's an offensive kingdom. Well, with those three things in mind... uh, we're going to open Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he describes his kingdom, he describes the people of his kingdom. And it opens with eight statements, eight blessing statements that you might know of as the Beatitudes. You ever heard of those? The Beatitudes? It comes from a Latin word, uh, Beatus, which means blessed or happy, because every line, each line of these, these eight statements begin with Blessed are those, blessed, blessing. Um, And each one, as we read it, you're going to see this upside-down kingdom. Because everyone, in purely human terms, seems to be a contradiction in terms. You go, that doesn't make sense. I don't, that doesn't make sense. But it will. So with that, Matthew chapter 5 Let's look forward. And I have each of these statements printed for you uh, in your outline, and in your insert this morning. Or you can kind of follow along. They'll be on the screen as well. But starting in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And taught who? Well, Luke tells us he taught his disciples. He taught them saying these things. He says first, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and what you're going to see in the Beatitudes, in these eight statements, is it's going to describe who God's kingdom people are. Like how, how, how do you know someone who's part of God's kingdom? Well, they're characterized by these things. And those of you who are disciples of Jesus, who have trusted him, who have followed him, these things are and should be increasingly true of you. And and they're a description. And to to understand them, each each of these statements, by the way, there have been men who are a lot smarter and a lot more gifted at preaching than me who have taught entire sermons on each of these individual verses, if not sermon series. I mean, there's so much truth in each of these statements but we're going to take them all as a whole because they all as a whole describe God's kingdom people. And Jesus is he's speaking to to his people and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each of these begins with a blessing and then a description or a future promise or a promise of what that blessing is going to look like. It describes people who are blessed and then it describes how they're blessed, each one of these, Okay. So this first one, who are the first group of people Jesus says is blessed? Blessed are the poor, or the poor in spirit. Anybody ever been poor? Have you ever seen people who are poor? I mean, really, in our culture and in North America, we think we understand what poverty is. We think we understand what it means to be poor. But, man, travel to India. Travel somewhere else where you see really, truly the poor of this world and there's not one of us who, in relation to history and into the world, are poor. We might be in relation to one another, but in any case, Jesus says that blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. How many of you would look at somebody who has nothing and you go, oh, they're so blessed. How many in this world would look at somebody who has nothing and go, I want to be like that and have nothing. I want to be poor. I want to be needy. That's what that word can also be translated as there. Blessed are the needy. Blessed are the needy. Does that seem like a blessing to you? Well, in God's kingdom it is. Blessed, this word word blessed, makarios in Greek, it means blessed or happy. It can also be translated happy or the poor in spirit. Here's why they're blessed. The poor in spirit recognize that there's no way to please God. There's nothing that they have. No good apart from God's grace. When you're poor in spirit, you recognize, I have no hope on my own. My only hope is Jesus. And how does that make you blessed? Well, it's a blessing because it causes us to repent and to turn to him. When we're poor, when we're broken in spirit, we, we turn and we repent, right? And we turn to Jesus, and that's a huge blessing. And in fact, the poor in spirit, the poor on this earth... It may seem like you have nothing. You may seem needy. You may, But that's a good thing because it turns you to God who has everything and blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may think you have nothing. You may think you're a wretch and lost and poor but the reality is in Jesus you have everything. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Notice that's not a future blessing that it will be yours. It is yours. So that tells me Something about this kingdom we can see on this earth, and something about this kingdom we can have right now. Jesus says, Only those who humble themselves, in other words, who depend on God, are admitted into the kingdom of heaven. Those are the only ones to whom it, whom it belongs. Isn't that the opposite of what so many people think today? You, you just look at the world stage today, right? You follow the news at all, you look, look at some of the wars that are happening around this world. Are, are, are those people poor in spirit and humbling themselves so that God might give them his kingdom? No, they're fighting for it, right? I mean, they're on the offensive. There's, there's war. There's fa- it's, it's totally opposite of a kingdom on this earth where you seek to gain power. Instead, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter describes it this way. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. This first beatitude is described in the present. The next ones we're going to see are future tense. It's already present, but not yet, because there's some things that are future. How about this second one? Not only blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time that you were really sad, you were mourning, you were some circumstance in life, whether it's something that happened to you, or, or, or to someone you love or maybe you lost a loved one or or something's going on in your life that's incredibly hard and you've entered a season or a period of life of mourning, how many of you in that mourning you go, wow, this is such a great thing. Happy is he who mourns. Blessed am I who mourns. You ever feel that way? You ever think that way? Not on your own, you probably don't. Maybe if you read the scripture in that time you did. As I've been mourning uh you know, I've shared a lot of this and been open with you guys, but with my dad having cancer and and thinking through all of that and, and the pain of that, my first thought isn't, wow, I'm blessed to be able to mourn. But in that mourning and, and in that sadness and in that hurt, I am blessed. Why? Because I see the grace of God to me. I see God's goodness to me. I see the truth of Scripture that mourning lasts only for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Morning with no you. Like, right? To mourn is to be sad, full of grief, I wrote down, the result of depressing circumstances, losing a loved one, losing your job, uh, losing your possessions, illness. Isaiah says that, the Messiah would come to comfort all who mourn. In Revelation seven seventeen, it says, For the Lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye, every tear from your eye. Do you mourn? Jesus doesn't say mourning is, is a fun thing, but he says that you'll be blessed, that there's a day where You'll be comforted. You'll be comforted. And in fact, the way Luke describes it, he says, Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. How many are like, yeah, on to the laughing. I'm ready to laugh. Bring on the laughing. Tell me some jokes, something. I'm ready for joy. That's a promise we hold on to, amen? In the midst of mourning, we're blessed because we know we have a hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it clear following him won't necessarily lead to earthly popularity, fame, or fortune. But he seems to indicate it will lead to mourning. It will lead to sadness. It will lead to grief. And ultimately, mourning can also be in relation to our sin. This type of mourning, this type of sadness should lead us to repentance, right? So again, it's a blessing. When I mourn my sin, when I I, I regret my actions, I For godly grief, Paul says to the Corinthians, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Do you mourn? If you're in Jesus Christ, you will be comforted. Amen? Now before I go on, when you read Luke's account of this, Jesus gives a a few of these beatitudes, but then he also follows it up with a few warnings or a few woes. He speaks to his people, to his disciples, and he says, Blessed are you when you weep now, for you will laugh. But later he says, Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep. In other words, if your identity is, is not in this earth, but in my kingdom... You may weep while you're on this earth, and that's okay. You're blessed, though, because in my kingdom, when you're with me forever, for all of eternity, you'll laugh, and there'll be joy, everlasting, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more... I've read that in the Bible somewhere, have you? Revelation, right? Those will be good days, and your hope is there. But if you laugh now, and this is the place of your identity, and your eyes are totally on this earth, and this is the only place for your joy woe to you. Because there will be a day of weeping for you. And in fact, an eternity of weeping for you. I said it like this. You might write this down. But for those of you who know Jesus Christ, for those of us who know Jesus, this earth is as close to hell as we will ever get. Amen? Amen. However, the opposite is true. Woe to those who laugh now, for they shall weep. See, those who don't know Jesus Christ, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Be part of his kingdom. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, is that a word you use every day? You describe people as meek very often. I don't. What does meek mean? What does that word mean? Well, it can mean humble. Sometimes it's translated as as humility, as being humble. Sometimes, in fact, this particular word in the Greek, every time else it's translated in the New Testament, it's translated gentle or mild. In the Old Testament, when you see the word meek, it often referred to those who were oppressed or who were poor or who were lowly. And in this beatitude, Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 11, it says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, though inherit the earth. Meekness, sometimes we interpret that. We hear somebody who's meek, we think, oh, they're weak. That's what that means. See, it even rhymes. Meekness is weakness, right? You ever think that? Even subconsciously, do you th- maybe think that? I think oftentimes we do. But, but Jesus is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians as meek and as gentle. And Jesus fits that Old Testament description of meekness. He was oppressed. He, was, he became poor. He was lowly. Jesus is meek, right? If meekness is weakness, is, is Jesus weak? Yes or no? No, absolutely not. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is God of the universe who created all things and holds all things together, right? That's a little short of being weak in my mind. Jesus is not weak, but he is meek. So that tells me meekness cannot equal weakness. Instead, meekness maybe might also be characterized by, by saying that it's having power, it's having identity, but it's having that authority under control. It's having it under control. It's not lording it over other people. Somebody who's meek then is gentle. See, James describes it this way. He says, understand, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Verse 21, so so get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly or meekly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your souls. If, if meekness is power under control, when I'm meek, then I'm gentle. I'm like Jesus. So like in James' description here where he uses this word, uh, meekness is, is having the, the, the power of my tongue, which is pretty powerful. Would you agree? Jesus says, or James says, Jesus' brother James says that, that with your tongue you can incite all kinds of flames of fire. You can cause all kinds of problems by running your mouth. Right? Everybody's silent, but we all know. It's true. It's true. And, and so James says, be slow to speak. That's meekness. It's having the power of your tongue under control. He says, uh, be quick to listen. Our attention is a powerful thing. What do you give your attention to? If I give my attention to the wrong things, I quickly stray. If I give my attention to the right things, I become like Jesus. Be quick to listen. Have that power of my attention under control. Have Slow to anger. The power of your emotion under control. Dads especially. Use your anger. Be angry and don't sin. With your spouse. With your kids. Right? The the powerful emotion of anger. the, The effect that that has on your children is huge. Huge. Demonstrated in a godly way. It's okay to be angry, but be slow to anger. And in your anger, don't sin. Be meek. Have that anger under control, that power under control like Jesus. And ultimately, meekness is being subjected to another's will in deference to your own. It's, it's, it's synonymous with humility. What's humility? I describe it all the time as knowing my place. Well, what's my place? It's below God. And it's above lower creation. I'm humbly honored, right? I'm humbled before God. I'm honored above all else in creation because I bear God's image. Meekness is knowing my place. Humility is knowing my place. Now that, that carries two things with it. It means I'm not going to be haughty. And, and that's sometimes we think, oh, I, I, yeah, that's, that's a clear one, right? Haughtiness, and, and I'm thinking way too much of myself. And he thinks he's God. He thinks he's in control. Who made you king, Right? It, we see that as sin really quickly But you know sometimes we don't see a sin In knowing our place Is you ever just talk yourself down I'm so awful I always fail I always screw up You never get that right Josh They don't want to hear that Why would you say that you, you always Miss this thing You always fail at this What do they think And when God has you right here, humbly honored, you've talked yourself down to here. And what you say is that, well, my opinion, yeah, but God doesn't understand. I mean, he doesn't understand how filthy and how awful I am. That's why I say those things to myself, because I really belong down here. And so you're putting yourself in the place of God, just like the person who's haughty and thinks they're in control of all things puts themselves in the place of God. Because God says, no, you're here. You're not there. Yeah, but I'm here. And you talk and you put yourself in the place of God and talk yourself down. When God says no, right here. Meekness is knowing your place. It's not being haughty. It's not talking yourself down. It's living as who Jesus says you are. Here's, Jesus, here's the description of Jesus and his meekness. Philippians 2, 4-8. through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. That's meekness. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Revelation 21 and 22 says that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, that Jesus is going to appoint people to rule and reign over that creation. Do you want a spot? Be meek. Be meek. Be humble. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Verse 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A hunger or a thirst is a deep, intense longing that a person wants and ultimately needs to satisfy it. How many of you are like the Snickers commercial? Like, right? You get hungry and you're a different person. There's this intense longing in you. You have to have some food. It, oh, it's just intense, isn't it? A lot of times I get tired or I get grumpy. Surprise, huh? That's not a surprise. Hannah asks me sometimes if I'm hungry when I'm grumpy. I say, I'm not hungry. I'm, I'm not hungry. I'm, I, I really don't want anything right now. Thanks. She doesn't say, you're grumpy. Eat something. But, you know, she... she and usually now I've, I've come to know if she's asking me if I'm hungry a couple of times, my attitude's probably out of check. And maybe I do need to eat something. And then I eat something, and it changes me. Right? I fill myself with that food and something biologically happens to where she says my eyes kind of light up and you look like a different person. That's better. It's like the Snickers commercial. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst not for Snickers, but for righteousness. Right? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? See, a lot of times when we hunger and thirst for things, we have appetites, we have desires in ourselves. We fulfill them one of two ways. We either fulfill them with right things, with righteousness, with right ways, with God's ways, with with what God would have us do. Or more often than not, in our sinfulness, we look at the quick fix, which is often sinful or something that looks enticing and maybe pleasurable for a moment, but ultimately leaves us more hungry than we were to begin with. And what you don't realize a lot of times is that really that desire for maybe a good thing or for something you're addicted to, ultimately, if you go deeper, it's a desire for Jesus' righteousness. And it's a hunger and it's a thirst for Jesus' righteousness. And that's the only thing that will sustain you and will fill you. And it will change you when you pursue those things. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. And my righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? You'll be changed. All these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom. Jesus says, blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's an intense longing. Psalmist describes it like this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When when shall I come and appear before him? Those of you who are Christians, you know ultimately that, that your thirst and your hunger for those things is a hunger for God. Quit feeding yourself with things. that, that It's like the sailor drinking salt water. It's just going to make you more thirsty. Be satisfied with Jesus. Turn to him, right? Those of you who have those hungers and thirsts and you've never turned to Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, that the only thing that will sustain and and give you peace from those things is when you turn to Jesus and you hunger for his righteousness because that's what fills and that's what will fulfill you. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. How? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. One day you'll live in complete righteousness. Won't that be a good day? One day I won't have stories to tell about being grumpy. That'll be a good day, right? One day I won't have to tell stories about the ways that I sin. Will that be a good day? That'll be a great day. Because one day that thirst will be fully satisfied when Jesus comes to take me to be with him. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we shall see him as he is blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy i define mercy a lot of times this is really simplistic but the way i'll describe it a lot of times if you've been here any length of time you've heard me say this is mercy is not getting what i do deserve not getting what i do deserve what do i deserve I'm sinful. I am messed up, right? I, I've, I've rebelled against God. I've shook my fist in His face. I've turned from Him over and over. What do I deserve? I deserve His wrath. I, I deserve punishment for my sin. I deserve uh, to burn in hell for eternity to pay the penalty for my. I, Josh Weiland, I deserve that. God's mercy is when I don't get what I deserve. There's a flip side to that coin it's getting what I don't deserve. If mercy is not getting what I do deserve, then I would say grace is the flip side of that coin where I get what I don't deserve. Where I get what I don't deserve. What do I get? Well, I get all these blessings he's speaking about. Uh, for mine is the kingdom of God. I, I'll be comforted. I'll inherit the earth. I'll, I'll receive mercy. I get what I don't deserve. That's grace. It's the flip side of the same coin. and, and, and Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. And, and Jesus is implying, remember he's describing what his kingdom people look like. He's saying, be merciful because I'm merciful. Show grace to people because I show grace to you. Love people because I love you. Live it out. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Why? Because they've been redeemed, they've been changed, and they're merciful like Jesus is. 1 John four nineteen says, We love because he first loved us. Well, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, this is a, a moral purity. They're honest, they're sincere. Now, now, when you read some of these, when you look at yourself in light of who you were before you were in Christ. I look at myself, blessed are the pure in heart. I look at myself in my sin. I go, I, boy, I'm not very pure in heart. I have some desires and some motives and some thoughts that are absolutely unpure. Anyone else? Yeah. So, so I look at this one and I go, man, I don't qualify for this one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Yet what is the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus, who is perfectly pure in heart, came, lived the perfect, pure life that I cannot, and paid the penalty for a sinful life that he didn't live, but that I do. And he paid the penalty for that on the cross, taking God's wrath on the cross that really should be poured out on me. So that he would give me that purity. So that he would give me, God says in the Old Testament, I'll give you a new heart. I'll take away your heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. I'll make you pure. I'll make you new. I'll make you clean. And the gospel is that, yeah, I sinned I messed up, but I gave that all to Jesus and now I'm in Christ and now I'm pure. Already pure, not yet fully pure, but I, I am pure, right? And because of that, the blessing is I will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. There's no no way to be completely pure in heart apart from Jesus Christ. No way. No way. And even then we sin and we need to continually repent and, and pursue his righteousness and pursue purity. Amen? Not to earn his favor, but because he's shown us his favor. Future blessing here is we'll see him, we'll find him, we'll know him more and more as we seek him day by day. So seek to be pure in heart. See, for John says in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This might be the easiest one to describe, to define, right? What's a peacemaker? Oh, is it somebody who makes peace? Yeah, you got it. Good job. Peacemaker is somebody who makes peace. Do you make peace with others or do you make war and conflict? Do you forgive or do you hold a grudge? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And and, and the peacemakers will be called sons of God. Why, Why would you be called a son of God? if if you line up a son and a father what's usually are you going to see between the two of them you're going to see some similarity right you're going to see that they probably look somewhat similar in some ways and even if physically they don't look similar likely in their actions there's going to be some mannerisms some ways they speak some things they say the way they laugh the way they look i mean the way they they look with their eyes Something similar, right? So blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. You'll be like God when you make peace. You're like Jesus when you make peace. See, the Bible says that while we were still his enemies, what did he do? He loved us and gave himself for us. And in fact, Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians, he himself, Jesus, is our peace, Who made us both one and has broken down his flesh and the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. He's speaking against some hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You want to be a peacemaker? Kill the hostility. Some of you, this might be the hardest one of all for you to hear because you're holding on to hostility. You're holding on to bitterness. You're holding on to things that you ought not hold on to. And you need, like Jesus, to kill that hostility between you and your spouse, you and your child, you and your friend. You need to kill it. It's doing no good to you. You think it's hurting them. It's hurting you. It's hurting you. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be sons of God. See, when you don't make peace, you're, you're, you're dishonoring your family. You're dishonoring the church. I'm not saying it's easy. Forgiveness costs us things, right? Right? how do I get Jesus how do I get God's forgiveness do I earn it does he sit around waiting to forgive me until the moment I finally get it right and ah, I don't know if you mean it yet Josh I don't know come back to me next week let's give it another month maybe I'll forgive you then does he do that no, in fact, he, Jesus loved me while I was still his enemy. He died for me on the cross while I was still against him. Before I had done anything to reconcile myself to him, he reconciled me to him and himself to me. He took the first step. The one who forgives does all the work. Do you want to make peace? Do you want to forgive someone? Guess whose work that's going to be? Not the person you need to forgive. They don't need to get it right so you can forgive them. You just need to forgive them. And I know it's incredibly hard. I know it is. It's not easy. Why? Because it costs something. When you forgive, when you're a peacemaker, you're a son of God because you're like Jesus, who is the son of God. You're like him. What did it cost him to forgive us? it cost him all of his righteousness it cost him everything he had everything in the world as god and what did he do he set it all aside to enter humanity as a vulnerable baby to put on flesh to live a life of poverty and then to give his life you don't think forgiveness costs something to the one who forgives it doesn't cost to the one who's forgiven it's a blessing to them it costs the person who chooses to forgive Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. It's not easy. I'm just gonna keep repeating that because the the quick response to that is yeah, but Josh, you don't get it, it's hard. I can't I know. I know. It's gonna cost you something. But what's better, to cost you something now that Jesus would reward you for in eternity or to hold on to what you have now so it would cost you in eternity? I'd say let's pay the price now, huh? Blessed are the peacemakers. You can see how guys write entire sermons on each of these statements, can't you? It's incredible, the truth there then finally the eighth one in verse 10 through 12 he says blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you jesus here in the intro to his sermon he says blessed are those who are persecuted boy Does that sound like a blessing to you? To be persecuted, to be ridiculed, to be mocked for your faith? For righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake, on account of him? Does that sound like a blessing? On face value, humanly speaking, again, it slipped on its head. It doesn't make any sense, does it? But it is a blessing. Why? Because for theirs is the kingdom of God. It may cost you now, but you'll get it all back in eternity. It's worth it. Two things here, as we close on this point. When you think about persecution, there's different degrees of persecution, okay? And and I need to say this because some sometimes we, the, the legalists among us, will go. Well, well here, let me say it this way. Somebody will say, "I'm." I'm I'm facing persecution for my faith. I, you know, I didn't get that promotion because of my, or I, you know, people are making fun of me because of this. And then the legalists go, that's not persecution. Turn on the news. Persecution is the people in, in the Middle East who are being crucified. You know, that's happening right now, right? By ISIS, by those people, the, the Muslims there, the radical Muslims are actually crucifying Christians. They're, they're beheading Christians today as we speak. More people have lost their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ in 2014 than in the previous uh, couple millennia almost combined. It's happening rapidly. That's persecution, but, but see there's degrees of persecution, right? Right? There's the degree up to that you may lose your life being persecuted, but there's also the persecution of simply being mocked and ridiculed for your faith. Is that still persecution? Yeah, it is. Maybe not to the same degree, but it is still suffering because of your faith in Jesus. Now, I would argue that in North America Christianity, most of our suffering and persecution is over on this side of the scale, like far over on this side. But there may be a day where that will amp up. And we'll move up that thermometer and up that scale over to this side. But, but don't encourage one another in that, right? Don't, don't just rail, oh, make them feel bad because they said that something happened to them because of their faith. Because it's not as bad as that guy. Well, that's just legalism, right? That's like saying, well, I'm better than the person next to me. And that's how God judges me. No, it, it's all persecution. A serious effort to live a kingdom life will result in opposition Maybe that's even a better word to use. This world's under Satan's control. Believers belong to the opposing army. You can expect persecution. It shouldn't surprise you. Later, when Peter wrote to persecuted believers, he urges them to be sure that their persecution was truly for righteousness sake and not for wrongdoing on their part. See, look at verse 11. He says, Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Why? On my account. He doesn't say blessed are you when people persecute you because you were stupid. You know the difference? As Christians, sometimes we can just do stupid things and sin, right? That's called consequence, not persecution. Persecution is when I'm I'm wrong or there's opposition to me because of my faith in Jesus Christ, because of a stand I've taken on his account. So rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me end with this. As we look at the Beatitudes, Jesus opening uh, to his Sermon on the Mount, he, he lists eight blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I would say each time, here's why this is important for us and, and a takeaway for you this week if you've trusted Jesus. Each time you find yourself at the beginning of one of those sentences, each time you find yourself as poor in spirit, Each time you find yourself as as being persecuted or oppressed because of your faith. Each time you you find yourself a peacemaker. Whenever you're on the front end of these statements, it's, it's not easy, but it is an opportunity for you to live out God's kingdom on this earth. It's an opportunity for you to honor Jesus. Some of you have the opportunity this week to To be poor in spirit and repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. to, To recognize you need him. Some of you have the opportunity to mourn loss and understand that in the end, Jesus gives everything back to us and more. And that there will be joy and laughter. Some of you have the opportunity this week to be meek and to be humble. And to give things up for the kingdom. Recognizing that again, you'll inherit the earth. Some of you have the opportunity this week to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be satisfied not with sin but with righteousness. Some of you have the opportunity to be merciful this week. Some of you have the opportunity to be pure this week and see God in that purity. Some of you have the opportunity to be a peacemaker. And it's an opportunity for you to live out Jesus' kingdom on this earth. Some of you may have the opportunity to be persecuted or oppressed because of your faith. And that's an opportunity for you to rejoice knowing that you're part of God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. With that, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to sing, and uh, we're going to call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Thank you for his example, and thank you for his his teaching to us. Help us to live as uh, citizens of your kingdom and live uh, rightly in light of that truth of who you say we are and and, uh, who you call us to be. Help us this week to live out those beatitudes, to let uh, those things be true of us, to see them as opportunities to live out your kingdom. And Father, I pray finally for those here this morning who maybe have, have never trusted you, have never been become part of your kingdom, that they would turn to you in saving faith, they repent of their sin, and simply turn Jesus to you. Father, thanks for Jesus. We pray all this through Him. Amen.